this crisis is the capstone of the age of impunity. And either impunity continues to feed on itself in war zones and elsewhere, frankly, or the fight back starts now. Welcome to Meet the Leader, a podcast where top leaders share how they're tackling the world's toughest challenges. Today's guest, David Miliband. He's the president and CEO of the humanitarian aid group, the International Rescue Committee. He'll talk to us about the unprecedented refugee crisis brought by the invasion of Ukraine, how groups like his are keeping pace, and how this moment drives home a critical message to leaders of all stripes about power and its abuses. Subscribe to Meet the Leader on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review us. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum, and this is Meet the Leader. I think this is a very significant geopolitical moment where it's not just a, a week when decades happen, but it's also got to be a week when the next decades are structured. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has triggered what experts have called the fastest growing refugee crisis since World War II. Millions have fled to Poland, Romania, Slovakia, Hungary, and a host of other countries in a matter of days, not months, and the numbers are continuing to mount. Helping those cross the border or stay in Ukraine is also an unprecedented challenge and one that David Miliband knows well. As president and CEO of the International Rescue Committee, his global aid organization responds to the world's worst humanitarian crises. What our job is as a humanitarian agency is not just to help people live, not die. We want to help them survive, recover, and gain control of their lives. He took a moment to talk to me, the leader, from the IRC's New York headquarters about the type of help groups like his are providing and how they're keeping up with growing needs. He also explained how the Ukraine crisis could shine a light, not just on the growing numbers of displaced people, but on abuses of power generally, potentially helping the world steer away from what he sees as an age of impunity. He'll talk about all of this, including the special role business leaders can play. But first, he'll break down what his teams on the ground are seeing firsthand. Well, the amazing thing about this war, or one of the amazing things, is that what is being told to people on the ground is being told to the world through social media and through conventional media. So what our, and, and just to explain to you, for your audience, uh, we have teams based in Lublin, uh, but also inside Ukraine. Uh, we are working through local partner organizations because both on the European side of the border and in Ukraine itself, there's developed over the last 30 years, and I suppose in Ukraine over the last 10 years, really quite a vibrant civil society, NGOs, uh, non-governmental organizations, as well as governmental structures. And our approach as a humanitarian organization is always to try to add capacity, but never to duplicate capacity. And so since there are skilled people, there are people knowledgeable about the area, we're getting financial support to local NGOs that have got credibility and roots in, in the organizations. We're working with local governments on the European side. So in answer to your question, what are people, what are our people seeing? They're seeing terrible wounds of war. They're seeing trauma. Uh, they're seeing separated families. They're seeing kids who can hardly speak because of what they've left behind, left their fathers or in some cases brothers behind. They've seen unspeakable cruelty and inhumanity and uh, a bombardment, a pulverization of, of, of what three weeks ago was a society that any of us could, could recognize. And 
what our job is as a humanitarian agency is not just to help people live, not die, although that's obviously fundamental. We talk about our mission being to help people whose lives are shattered by conflict and persecution and disaster. That certainly fits this category. We want to help them survive, recover, and gain control of their lives. And so in the Europe, on the Europe side of the border, there's more opportunity to go beyond the mere survival. And so kids getting into school adults and families getting billeted with other families and even thinking about employment. That's the kind of expertise that we've developed as a refugee resettlement agency in America, the largest one. And then inside Ukraine, we're much more focused on the fundamentals. Healthcare, I think, is going to be a desperate need, a lot of non-communicable disease that's now with interrupted supply chains for pharma, etc. Water and sanitation, major issue with bombardment and sometimes just cutting off of water supplies, electricity supplies. We have a history of doing that work. We, we did some very important work in Sarajevo in the 1990s, so we've got some expertise. And we're working as part of, obviously, a, a, a global community that's been mobilized for this crisis at a time when there are many other crises going on. So I, I always think it's important to say that although the searchlight switches from Syria, Afghanistan, Ethiopia, the Sahel, we as an organization can't afford just to move all our resources because there are too many people in need in those other places. Absolutely. What do the, the folks coming over uh, the border, what do they need most uh, of all the things that you've talked about? What is the most critical need? The, there's no one case. I mean, you've got pregnant women who need some support. You've got people who haven't slept for three days and haven't eaten properly. And so they need they need support. There are people who are in deep trauma and need trauma counseling. There are people who have suffered bereavement and haven't yet been through grief. Uh, they're, they're still in shock. So it depends on the needs. And you said at the beginning, you used an important word at the beginning, I think when you said it was the fastest refugee flow. I think that's an important it's not yet the largest refugee flow. Five and a half, six million people have left Syria. Um, but this is the fastest refugee flow. Just by way of comparison, I think it's quite interesting that it took three months for a million people to flee from Syria in 2011. And it took a week for a million people to flee from Ukraine. I mean, partly because Ukraine's well-connected. It's got railways. It's got roads that people are using. Syria has roads too. But it, it, it's blown up. To a, the, the conflict has blown up to a level of virulence um, very, very fast. And now there are 3 million people who have the border. And the processing and the documentation has been stood up in very short time. Um, the countries of Eastern Europe have been extraordinarily open. Moldova as well, which is not in the European Union. But countries like Poland, obviously, but Slovakia, 150, 180,000 people. Not the richest parts of the European Union at all. So uh, I think the only fair answer to what are they seeing, what are they hearing, is that it, it depends. With that uh, very fast influx, how does that create extra challenges on uh, humanitarian organizations like your own to try to help these people at a rate that is unprecedented? Well, I think that the important point to make is that people are fleeing to the world's largest, richest single market. And that is different than the refugee experience in most parts of the world. When a million Rohingya flee from Myanmar to Bangladesh, when a million and a half South Sudanese flee from South Sudan uh, into Uganda when Syrians flee to Jordan or Lebanon, they're fleeing to lower middle income or poor countries. The Ukrainian refugees have uh, one benefit, which is they're fleeing to richer countries that have very significant state structures as well as non-governmental structures. So our role is different in a European, Polish, 
uh, Hungarian, German, even Moldovan uh, situation than it is in a Bangladesh situation or another situation. What we know and what the European authorities have understood is that building refugee camps for these people is to create funeral homes for dreams. I mean, that's not the right way to, to do it. And so there's a real emphasis on fast processing. The immediate decision or all but immediate decision of the EU 27 to offer three years residence, three years work permits, three years access to services really helps. But it's a hell of a thing to document, process, and then locate uh, three million people. Now, a lot of the Ukrainians, are, they're, they're voting with their feet. They've got links in other parts of Europe. They've got a determination to go to different parts of Europe. Some of them want to go to the UK. And I think that's very important. I'm based in New York, but I'm a British citizen. And the UK has been a laggard in this refugee response, but is beginning to catch up. And, and those that want to go to the UK, they're self-motivated. But for others, they were a fitness trainer or a teacher or a journalist three weeks ago, and now they're a refugee. And there needs to be a, some kind of system to accommodate that and then to help provide some, I don't like to say burden sharing, because I think the burden is, is not, but responsibility sharing. Because one important lesson of the Syria crisis, it makes sense, is that if you just allow a small number of countries to have the, the full responsibility, it doesn't work very well. Um, the IRC has warned that women and girls are most at risk for exploitation, for abuse during this time. Can you explain a little bit about why that is and what's being done to protect them? Well, there's a global uh, trend, I'm afraid, that, or a global syndrome that in any emergency, it's, it's, it's an obvious point, so I apologize for making it, but very stressful situations lead to more violence against vulnerable people, or women and girls being absolutely open to exploitation. And there's a particular angle on it in this case, which is that the people fleeing in emergencies around the world are, are generally predominantly or majority women and kids. But in this case, the fact that there is conscription for 18 to 60-year-olds mean that it's not just a majority, it's, it's all but exclusively women and girls, women and kids who are fleeing. And so you've you've got a slightly different situation. It's important to say as well, there's been some press coverage of this. There are 70 to 80,000 students and foreign workers from Africa and uh, South Asia, from India, uh, Bangladesh in some cases, who, who are also fleeing. And, and some of their treatment has not been anything to, to defend. I mean, it's been discriminatory, which is obviously contrary to the whole principles of the refugee convention. But the, the fears that we have of exploitation are, are sadly well-founded. But we're talking about a, a cohesive civil society in Ukraine. You, you've seen that in the, the stories that have come out. And in the West, people around Lviv are really trying to support each other. And then in Europe, there's been a tremendous response. And that's also a mitigating factor against the dangers of exploitation. But I think it's important to raise it as being a real issue. There have been reports from local officials that humanitarian corridors are being fired on. Can you uh, explain to people who might not be familiar what a humanitarian corridor is and whether uh, people can get safely out? Well, it's real Orwellian doublespeak, this humanitarian corridor thing. So, so you're right to put it in you implied it was in quotation marks, and I always say, quote, unquote, humanitarian corridors, because what could they mean? A humanitarian corridor could mean a way for civilians to get out of the fighting safely, and it could be a way for aid to get into the fighting, to get into the fighting zones. And I do want to remind your audience that humanitarian aid for civilians in conflict is an international legal right, just as the right not to be killed if you're a civilian in conflict is also an international legal uh, right. So part of the impunity that we're seeing sort of symbolized by the crossing of the border, the invasion across a border, but it's being compounded by the impunity in the tactics of war. 
the, the, the idea of a humanitarian corridor um, has been the goal, I suppose, which is that it helps people get out and helps aid get in, has been corroded by experience. Because in Syria, for example, people were let out of Ghouta in eastern Damascus, but they were herded into another part of the country where al-Qaeda groups are in control and where all of the rebel-held areas, populations, including a lot of journalists, actually have been pushed into that area. So corridor to where? And you'll have seen the press coverage about civilians fleeing Mariupol could go to Belarus or to Russia. Well, they don't, they don't want to go to Belarus or Russia. They want to stay in Ukraine. So corridor to where? Uh, it, it has to be a corridor to safety, but it also has to be a place that people want to, to go to. And as of now, there's been very little focus on the idea of a corridor as an entry point into the areas that are being contested. I mean, the 400,000 people lived in Mariupol, less now, but not that much less. Electricity cut off, food supplies cut off, desperate situations. So, I mean, a real besiegement, which is facilitated, sadly, by the geography with the, with the water on one side. So I think that this humanitarian corridor question has become a substitute for obedience to international law questions. The denial of aid is, the, is a breach of international law. And we need, ver- we need very strong bearing of witness to the breaches of these international regulations, because m- my case over the last few years has been that we're witnessing an age of impunity. I spoke about this at uh, Davos, actually, just before COVID struck. And the uh, apex of the international legal system is that if you're a civilian in war, you have a right not to be killed. And if you're a civilian caught up in fighting, you have a right to aid. And if those rights are not, protected. My argument is that's the tip of a very dangerous iceberg, or the thin end of a very dangerous wedge is maybe a better metaphor. Because when it becomes optional to obey international law, when it uh, applies to matters of life and death, it's a very short uh, step to then making it optional in a whole range of other matters as well. What sorts of resources do aid groups like yours or others need to keep up with this vast influx of people? Well, I think that that question is, is complicated by the the breadth of need. I think that any of the figures that you see are are being recast in real time because you you know what it costs to educate a child in Italy for a year. I mean, you can can measure that in euros and there are going to be a lot of Ukrainian kids in Italy who need education, ditto in Poland. The health needs, you you can put various costings on on it. At the moment, uh, the message is, I'm afraid, a very simple one, um, which is that while there are precise estimates that are being that are mounting every day for the rebuilding costs of Ukraine, I mean, I saw a figure of 100 billion two days ago. When it comes to the humanitarian effort, organizations like mine are, are appealing for funds both for Ukraine and for the other conflicts, because we know that the humanitarian aid budget, which just to give you a sense, is about $40 billion globally until the Ukraine crisis. And the you know, American GDP is 20, 20 plus trillion dollars, um, European GDP, 20 plus trillion dollars. So it's, it's relatively small sums by those numbers, but UN appeals are systematically underfunded. I mean, the Yemen appeal, 10%, 20%, 30% funded, Syria, etc., with, with a sort of exhaustion setting in, even though the budget's rising. And overall, Humanitarian needs have trebled in the last decade, and humanitarian funding has doubled from a base that itself was too low. So that gives you a sense of things. People are being generous. Uh, The emphasis I'm putting is that in this Ukraine crisis, money is not the main problem. The main problem on, on the European side is organization of people, and the main problem on the Ukraine side is access. Uh, And money's important, 
but if we just raise the money but can't get into the besieged places, then we're not going to be able to spend it. And that, I, I think, calls for the, a wider discussion. I wrote in the New York Times about how there was a moral issue, not just a military issue, at stake in the Ukraine crisis. In your mind, what's needed to bridge that gap between the organization piece and that access piece? Is it something that the international community can do or neighboring countries? What is needed? I mean, we've got to hold up the UN Charter and defend it. We need every UN official to be shouting about the UN uh, Charter. We need every diplomat to be making absolutely clear this is a non-negotiable set of commitments that member states of the UN have made. We're talking about a member state of the UN and a permanent member of the Security Council that is the aggressor in this conflict. So let's just be, let's understand what the situation is. And we need a bearing of witness. We need repeated political emphasis on the centrality of international law. We need extraordinary uh, courage on the part of aid workers um, who are Ukrainians. They're not just people being jetted in. They're, they're, they're Ukrainian aid workers who we are supporting. We need restraint uh, from the combatants because from the Russian side, fundamentally, because they are at the moment using tactics that are putting civilian life, never mind aid supplies, at risk. You talked earlier about responsibility sharing. What is the role of leaders of any stripe, even business leaders, in that responsibility sharing? What should they be thinking about or doing? Well, I think that the response needs to be a tri-sector response. I mean, there's no possibility of responding adequately to this crisis, even on the relief side, if it's just a governmental response or just an NGO response. Uh, the private sector has a fundamental uh, role uh, to play here. I'll concentrate on the humanitarian effort in Europe. Look, there needs to be a tri-sector response, and every business leader, I, I think, has a dual responsibility. One is, what did you do in the war, Daddy? What's, uh, what's your company's response? I mean, and there's been some very, very imaginative commitments, people in the housing sector, for example, helping facilitate uh, the billeting of uh, Ukrainian families. So there's a there's a short-term and medium-term response about what are you doing to support, not just through financial donations, but through your supply chains, through your business networks, to really try and help support the integration and relief of the people who make it out. There's also a vital role for the private sector in helping think about, well, what are you doing to help organizations that are trying to get people in and trying to get aid in. So that's, you know, I, I said that we were going to be working very much on the medical side. There may be some telemedicine aspects to that, but there's also some pharmaceutical supplies elements that are going to be very, very important. Uh, but then there's a, the second part of the responsibility for business is to understand and speak to the fact that you can't pick and choose your rules-based order. You can't want your property, you can't expect your property rights to be respected if human rights are not expected. I mean, there's a real connection here. And when I spoke about the tip of the iceberg, being or, or the thin end of the wedge being that civilians when civilians in conflict have their rights abused and, and are killed or have aid denied that's of a genus it's of a part of a wider syndrome where human rights and property rights are not properly observed and what we know is the governments that come after human rights end up coming after property rights so i think there's a bigger argument for business to make against impunity and for accountability and business depends on the rule of law and uh, I would argue that business shouldn't just speak to the importance of the rule of law for business. It needs to speak to the importance of the rule of law for society. 
And otherwise, we have no traffic lights to, to run the global system. When uh, Syrian refugees poured over the border in Poland in 2015, there was a political backlash. What is different this time? Uh, what is happening to those refugees? Well, I'm afraid that there, there's a there's rather a sobering answer to that question. I mean, the, the, the unity of the EU 27 on this is very striking and very positive. And the welcome for Ukrainians is, is very good. But you're right to call out that there hasn't been similar welcome for, there wasn't similar welcome for Syrians. And fundamentally, that's because of their ethnicity, their religion. Let's be honest about it. And Europe doesn't have a refugee resettlement framework agreed, the European Union. It doesn't have an agreed approach to handling of asylum seekers across all the member states. There's a resettlement and migration package that's being negotiated for the last five years. The Biden administration has said it will take 125,000 refugees a year. It said this well before the Ukraine crisis. There's no similar commitment from the European Union for the most vulnerable refugees from the world's conflicts. Most refugees stay close to where they their country of origin. But for the most vulnerable, they need to resettlement. There's no such resettlement in Europe. So what, what, what the crisis shows is that there's differential standards being applied depending on where refugees come from. And that's that's a fact, I'm afraid. So the Ukraine crisis has brought a special visibility to displaced people, but 2022 already started with an unprecedented number of displaced people. And that number has been growing for years. How important is this moment to help people take this issue more seriously and maybe finally have a better understanding of what refugees are and what they need. How important is this moment? Well, that's a good question, I think, if I may say so. And but I'm going to answer it um, in two parts because it's not just about refugees. I mean, to state the obvious, the, the the reset that I will argue for about the refugee question is part of a wider reset that I think this crisis may provide. I mean, the, the, the emergence of the European Union as a, as a serious security power is, is striking. The, re, the resurrection of the transatlantic alliance is a very serious and in some ways surprising consequence of this, of this uh, crisis. So part one of the answer is that my view on the reset is that this crisis is the capstone of the age of impunity. And either impunity continues to feed on itself in war zones and elsewhere, frankly, or the fight back starts now. And the fight back is not just about the conduct of peace and war. It's actually a conduct about the abuse of power in a range of other areas, because impunity is not confined to matters of peace and war. The abuse of power is something that's increasingly evident in many aspects of society, and democracy is itself a victim of the abuse of power. Democracies are themselves a victim of the abuse of power. Um, the decline of liberal democracy, according to all of the statistics, Freedom House, Gothenburg Institute for Varieties of Democracy, Economist Intelligence Unit, that is both a symptom of the age of impunity and a cause of the age of impunity. It's very important to, to understand that. So from my point of view, the big picture is that we have to, that the, the President Putin has attempted to rewind the geopolitical clock to 1990. The rest of us have to rediscover this original spirit of 1989-90, which was about the accountability of power and the saying no to impunity, which is what the communist regime um, epitomized. And I think this is a very significant geopolitical moment where it's not just a, a week when decades happen in this now hackneyed uh, phrase of Lenin's, but it's also got to be a week when or weeks when the next decades are structured. And that's where I think the decisions are very, very big. And I, I think there is a bigger lattice work that needs to be uh, constructed. Within that context, you're right to say there are record numbers of refugees, record numbers of internal displaced who are refugees within their own country. Um, they, those 80 million people in total, are 
the most vulnerable victims, in a way, of the system failure that exists, states abusing their, the rights of their citizens, diplomacy in retreat, 55 civil conflicts around the world, legal rights in retreat in the way that I've described, the humanitarian and development system left, left uh, stranded. And the system needs a reboot. And uh, the system of refugee support for refugee hosting countries, but also for the most vulnerable refugees in the ways that I've described, also needs a reboot. And it's all about recognizing that in the same way that nuclear security, health security, environmental security are global public goods, the benefits of them can't be confined to a single player. So the hosting of refugees is a global public good, and it needs to be treated in that way. Uh, we've got uh, exactly one minute left. Do you have a message for leaders uh, looking to do their part, people listening, learning about these things on the daily? What is your message for people that they should be taking from this? My message is that this is a vital moment, uh, not just for Ukrainians, but for the rest of us. It's a moment when decades happen. Uh, it's a moment when voice and action is important, when tri-sector action is more important than ever. It's a moment when I hope people will visit the IRC website, rescue.org, to learn more about what can be done, because I think there's a there's a, a damaging sense of disempowerment that can exist at moments like this. And I think part of the object of discussions like the one we've had is that uh, people shouldn't take an excuse in disempowerment. There's actually ways to have an influence, and it's a moment when we're called to do so. That was David Miliband. Thanks so much to David for taking time for us this week and being this week's guest. And thanks to you for listening. To learn more about the crisis in Ukraine, please listen to Robin Pomeroy's podcast, Radio Davos. His latest episode covered the Ukraine energy crisis, as well as how the situation is impacting children. Find that episode and more Ukraine coverage by my colleagues on weforum.org. Find a transcript of this episode and others at wef.ch slash podcasts. If you like this week's episode, please let us know. Take a moment to rate and review us. We would love to hear from you. This episode of Beat the Leader was produced and presented by me with studio production by Gareth Nolan. That's it for now. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum. Have a great day. <laughs>